stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. You might be surprised to learn that today's guest, Karen Russell, has trouble sleeping. Her first collection of stories, St. Lucie's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, was named a Best Book of the Year by the Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, and San Francisco Chronicle. Her debut novel, Swamplandia, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her second story collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, was described by NPR as one of the most innovative, inspired short story collections in the past decade. Additionally, Karen Russell was named by The New Yorker as one of the 20 best writers under 40, as one of Granta Magazine's best young novelists, and one of the National Book, Award, National Book Foundation's five best writers under the age of 35. In 2011, Russell received a Guggenheim Fellowship, in 2012, a National Magazine Award for Fiction, and in 2013, a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. Karen Russell returns to Between the Covers today <laughs> to talk about what she's been up to in 2014, namely her first novella, Sleep Donation, a dystopian tale about a potentially fatal insomnia epidemic and the moral questions raised by the technology that allows for still healthy dreamers to donate their sleep to those afflicted. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Karen Russell. Hi, David. I'm so honored to be the first repeat guest. Yeah, I know. The first person who I've interviewed for the second time. I'm psyched. I want to insist that that goes on every future bio. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, let, before, we, before we talk about the uh, main character of Sleep Donation, let's do a little world building for, for our listeners. Tell okay. us about the insomnia epidemic. How, how did it start or where did it start? Is it affecting everybody in the world? And and, and, and what's going on as the, as the epidemic begins? Sure. So this, the epidemic surprised me, too, a little bit when I was drafting. Um, I had sort of thought this was going to be like a 3,000-word sort of some sort of like whimsical um, riff on the idea of dream donation. You know, sort of an American Red Cross-style organization would roll up into your town and something analogous to blood donation would occur that would let people transfer, healthy sleepers could transfer dreams to insomniacs. That was the kernel that this kind of grew out of. And then somewhere along the way, um, you know, it took on these sort of global apocalyptic proportions, which was surprising to me and exciting. I thought that, as is often the case, right, These there's sort of a, a gulf between symptom and, and epidemiology, you know, there's this, this strange chasm where people don't yet know what's causing the insomnia epidemic, but they can measure effects. So it seems to be happening just in the Americas. I thought, let's just, let's just explore what would happen. Uh, if and there's even some skepticism at the beginning about huge, whether it's real, like right. sort of like reminds me of the beginnings of fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. Right. I was thinking about just those strange frontiers, right? So in the rear view, everything has been conjugated and you have this idea that things proceed in kind of a linear fashion and we have names and definitions. And But um, it's wild to read about sort of first cases and uh, the paranoia and suspicion that you come up against. I think with insomnia, too, it's such a strange blurring of somatic, psychosomatic. So if I tell you, be anxious, you're, you have insomnia, you, you, will have, you won't be able to sleep well. I mean, it's, it's that sort of blurriness, right? So yeah. here's something where hypochondriac can actually induce something that really clinically resembles insomnia because you're not sleeping. And, I mean, and if it's only happening in, in America, it also sort of hints at the possibility of, of something about the culture that's interfacing with the psychosomatic. Right. Right. So I sort of liked, we just, I think, have been inundated with all kind of 
doom-mongering, you know, of late. Just all, And people are so concerned, I think, about hyper-connectivity and hyper-arousal and sort of the world is is changing at this velocity. I mean, that's really true, I, I think, that we're just it's, – it's, it's a strange thing to be awake and watch it happen. So when you and I were teenagers, right, I mean, I, I just wrote this this goofy piece for Harper's about beepers. Maybe you didn't have a beeper. I didn't have that a beeper. That was like the proto-internet. You know, that was like yeah. our adolescent technology. It was like drug dealers and doctors and Miami teenagers all carried around these beepers. And that felt revolutionary because you were wireless, you know? Somebody could just sort of think about you, punch in your code, and then, you know, that thought detonated. Now you knew someone was thinking about you, you know, to externalize and formalize kind of like teenage telepathy, that whatever that is. That was wild. So now, though, to like see babies walking around with these moon rocks in their hand that kind of link them Mm. To the internet, it is. It's a really that that change has happened. I think at a pretty insane velocity, and a lot of people probably feel disoriented, or I certainly did. And I'm sure that that was percolating when I was thinking about okay, millions of Americans have lost the ability to sleep. You know, what would that really look like if a suddenly like this vast portion of the population is just awake all the time? What I really loved about the the frontier technology and sleep donation, the the process of actually. Uh, finding healthy sleepers and having and the technology that allows that healthy <laughs> sleep to to transfuse someone who's who's ill and can't sleep is the way that you juxtapose this futuristic idea with with technology that feels like it's coming from like Radio Shack in the 1980s. Yeah, it, it reminded thought? me. I don't know if you read the Flame Alphabet by Ben Marcus, but he had a similar thing with this strange device. There's lots of wires mm-hmm. and there's this weird gel. And, and and similarly here, it feels like even though we're dealing with this futuristic concept where there's there's this white van, it feels kind of sinister <laughs> and there's all these tubes everywhere. Right. Like some some kind of gaslight science fiction retro. I think I sort of, you know, that there's that, that future of the past feeling that I really loved as a reader, as a kid, sort of Tomorrowland, but Tomorrowland as designed in the 1950s or something. And um that's I, that's a little bit of an ask, I guess, on my part, you know, to the readers. But I do just like the idea that somehow we're, you know, things aren't far enough along. We're not so deep into the future. The, the timeline is, is, you know, kind of deliberately unspecified. But I was thinking not so much deeper into the future that a really shitty van isn't what's driving up with some sort of maybe dubious equipment, right? Yeah. And I just sort of... You know, the way that you surrender to the the sterility, you know, and pr- those procedures, I just think is there is that is sort of like our magic, right? Like, I think there's a real surrender and like some sort of mystique that attends to that process, you know, of sedation, the mask slips over you, you know, the that kind of like bleached faceless quality of the nurses, that mm-hmm. sort of sinister um, and reassuring somehow. I just, I loved all of that because I do think that is sort of close to the spell casting that people are all familiar with. That's just like part of daily life hmm. where you like just sort of surrender to the like weird authority of, you know, the hospital. Right. Introduce us to Trish, the, the protagonist that, that we're following in, in Sleep Donation. What, what is her story oh, yeah. and what is her function in, in the book? So Trish... Uh, that was when the thing really took off for me was when she rolled up. I think, again, I thought it was going to be this sort of – I can maybe read you guys. There's the, the, this acorn of the thing. was just like maybe 500 words that I wrote for this New Yorker assignment, which was to come up with an innovation, imaginary imaginary innovation. And so it was just the sleep fan and sort of no characters really. It is a little Ben Marcus feeling, I hope, you know, sort of um, twilight in the suburbs. Uh Something is one degree off, you know. It's kind of the world we recognize, but but altered in a sinister and and sort of unnameable way, atmospherically, whatever. So there's no there's no character in that kernel. And then this lady, I think the this first person voice, who is really chatty, kind of neurotic. She's uh there, the Slumber Corps is the goofy name I came up with for this organization, and she's their which star, was, which was built by former toilet tycoons, yeah. which I love, yeah. Toilet tycoons, captains of industry. <laughs> That's right. These American CEO brothers, and they sort of have left left the world of profit for the slumber core. They're going to dedicate all their time and energies to, you know, helping the insomniac population. 
Uh, Trish is somebody who's really succeeded for them as a recruiter of healthy sleepers because her sister, Dory, was one of the first victims. So I imagine Dory as being this, you know, more dead sisters. My sister wrote me an email where she was like, dear sister, please stop writing about dead sisters. Love your sister. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Dory died of a fatal insomnia. And so Trish sort of, uh, what makes her so skillful at getting these recruits is that she does what I imagined is like a pretty grotesque and visceral performance of her sister's last day. They call the period where you enter total uh, wakefulness, where, where you, you know, total cessation of sleep that precedes death, uh, the last day in this weird economy. So she performs sort of the last hour of her sister's last day for people. And this, um, this is sort of like a coercive strategy to get them to donate their dreams. Uh, and part of what's compelling about it, it almost is this idea that she has a, uh, an emotional insomnia. Like she can yeah. stay perpetually awake to the, the grief of her, of her sister. And because she can relive it as if it happened the day before, it seems like that is the power that is really gra- making people say, okay, I want to help. This is this is very personal. That's it. That's exactly it. And I think for me, this wound up being sort of a horror story about getting getting trapped in that limbo state. So if we have like a world of insomniacs who are sort of walking around in twilight, you know, half awake, um, I was thinking about this as being almost like a sympathetic contagion or something where Trish is really just cycling through grief pretty relentlessly. Her sister's last day or her sister's death has totally eclipsed every other moment of her real waking life. And that's that, you know, unfortunately, or that just that, that's what's giving her this ability to, um, you know, kind of imploring, beseech sleep from from these horrified <laughs> <laughs> recruits in shopping malls. Well, I mean, you raise one of the sort of moral centers of the book or ethical dilemmas of the book is when does recruitment become coercion? But the flip side of that is also the question of what responsibility do individuals have to the whole, yeah. and which you can look at anything from getting vaccinated to driving less to how, right. we, how we eat. And, and right. if you have this epidemic, what is the responsibility of an individual to contribute to its solution? Yeah, that I mean, it's and it, I think something about the the sort of goofy, if we're on a scale of this world, right? To make it like you know millions of insomnia to sort of blow out the math of it a little bit. And so I, I think I sort of w- was trying to do some straddle some tonal line between total swifty and satire, you know, and um, and something that feels earnest and meditative about yeah, grief and responsibility. And Did gifts you, and coercion. Do you see it as an allegory, or no, or not no, a, not in not in a, not in the kind of straightforward one to one that that implies? Because mm-hmm. that would suggest maybe that I have an answer, <laughs> which I absolutely don't, right. uh, to the question of what do we owe one another, and when does when does a request b- become something that looks like a demand or you know psychopathy or coercive? Sure. And I, so I think for me, it really was just a landscape where I could sort of move through some of these questions in the skin of Trish. Um, and they're her questions, too. I really saw them as rooted in her character. And she's just sort of I, I thought of it as if there's any any kind of optimism in it. I, I hope that the action of the book kind of gets her to wake up incrementally, wake up a little bit out of her sort of grief formaldehyde suspension, start to kind of consider that she might have her own secret and upsetting motivations that are not so straightforward as, oh, I just want to help insomniacs. I want to do good, you know, capital D, capital G, for repeating her sister's story um, and trying to infect, in in some ways, to infect these strangers with her sister's story. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Karen Russell about her latest novella, Sleep Donation. So I've read several things about potential origins for this idea for you. And you mentioned The New Yorker. And I've mm-hmm. also um, read suggested in The New York Times that one, some a piece of 100 Years of Solitude was potentially an inspiration. Is that is that true? Or is that a speculation on the part of... Oh, uh, uh, I thought that was a really generous speculation. A generous speculation. <laughs> like if you had to do the genealogy, <laughs> that's what you want. You want Marquez. You right. don't want, you know, I don't know, just bad hip-hop or something. Sure. Uh, 
So that wasn't really a direct connection to the insomnia that happens briefly in, in that book. I am sure in the mysterious way that all influence works, that that, you know, Marquez, I think, is so deep in my literary DNA. He's just somebody that I love so much that I would always be flattered if the paternity test revealed that I was his <laughs> daughter. You know, like right. what, who wouldn't want that? But I, I don't know. Um, I, I remember at, one, at a certain point being self-conscious that, oh, my God, who's going to write about insomnia in the wake of? Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So I guess that in that in that sense, I was conscious that, you know, he had, he had already sort of written this beautiful meditation on, you know, what it means to be awake versus sinking out of your own sight. Yeah. Um, well, I know that your your brother, who's also a writer, has written about his issues with sleep or his night terrors that he he yeah. had growing up, and I was curious if that informed this in in any way for you. I bet I'm sure that that really did. You know, I think, and it. I mean, it did. I don't know why I'm qualifying that. It absolutely did. My brother has a has a legitimate sleep disorder, which is terrifying, right? Because you see, sort of, see somebody you love cocooned in a nightmare, and you can't intervene. And I think that's a pretty universal horror story to see somebody you love in pain, and yet they're so sort of like locked into their own <laughs> subjective subjectivity that you can't you can't do anything for them mm. and that as a child was was upsetting too right like that's sort of like as a kind of an er memory of you know watching watching somebody drown into sleep every night and not being able to dive in save them help them you know that's also it's just i don't know what's up with my family but everybody kind of like wanders the night anytime there's a holiday you know, 4 a.m., it's just like ships ships passing in the kitchen. <laughs> like everyone's just making their insane peregrination and like some, you know. Well, it seemed from his essay that insomnia was a family affair for, yeah. for your family. And, and another thing that was interesting about it was his talking about the imagery really coming from one specific gory horror film special effects artist. And yeah. so uh, in a way, this is an infusion of a certain nightmare narrative into his sleep time, very similar to it's as if a certain story he's getting a sleep donation of the wrong story, yeah. essentially. Yeah, I think what's what we were just uh, hanging out recently, and we love watching horror movies together, and we were sort of speculating as to why that's so pleasurable, given that he's just gonna like jump into you know nightmare pool in you know in an hour or so and hang out there you know in, until daybreak. So why would you want to do it consciously? Right. while you're awake um yeah and why sort of invite more of that same imagery like why sort of huff the huff the gas of yeah. this you know blood spatter and monsters and things um and i yeah we, we didn't we didn't come up with anything so you know so brilliant but i, I do think there's a way where you have control right obviously if you're if you're awake and, and you can laugh you could tell jokes you can do some mystery science 3000 subtitling of the horror movie I mean, I wonder, I, I've really always loved horror novels. I love Stephen King. And I think for me as a kid, it was just exciting to have confirmed in an altered space that, yes, there were these violent forces, there were real dangers, and and often their origin was human, you know? Mm. So, well, well, I really love in your conversation with Stephen King about sleep donation, he talks about this concept that he calls the undermine. Yeah. And to me, that felt like it had a real resonance with sleep. The idea that he talks about, he puts together the story on the page as he intends, but there's another thing happening that's beyond his his control. His, his undermind is informing the narrative uh, without him knowing, essentially. And it felt very much like the unconscious or, or sleep mm -hmm. or dream state. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you saw a resonance with the undermind and, and the sleep epidemic that you're, you're – uh, Addressing yeah. in the book. Oh, David, I'm so glad you saw that. I I think he's uh, so brilliant and so generous, and it's such that I thought that was such a lucid and um, compact and incredible description of a process that can sound sort of Deepak Chopra mysterious, and you don't want to sound like you're wearing a turban covered in stars, you know, ever talking about the undermind or the unconscious. But there is a way that I think is familiar to almost every writer I've ever spoken to, where what you are doing is in excess of your conscious knowledge so you're putting words down on the paper maybe you have some idea some intention or sort of a for me it's always the lamest ambition for what a story is going to be 
And I mean, that absolutely happened while I was writing Sleep Donation. You know, it, it was um, just took on a kind of inertia that I hadn't anticipated and had a deeper structure that was only legible to me as I wrote forward. So I would never have been able to tell you on page one, oh, okay, I see what's happening. These are the these are the preoccupations or I, I just I didn't even know Dory until Dory showed up, you know, three paragraphs in. And I think that's so exciting and so terrifying in exactly the same way that being a dreamer is terrifying. Mm. Um and why why we are so obsessed with dreams, which neuroscientists can't tell us if they have any adaptive purpose, right? Right. Nobody knows what their function could be if they even have one, if they're just some spandrel of sleep, if they're, you know, just a way to sort of like a pacifier that we suck on while our body, um, but you even, know, performs metabolic functions. Yeah. No, but really nobody knows. But when we wake up, everyone is sort of so excited to clutch at these dissolving fragments of a dream. And I think the part that feels analogous to writing for me is as close to being possessed or something as I think you'll get in this life. You know, it really is pretty close to psychotic states also. Where you you're aware, but you don't have agency, and you're just things are truly bizarre, but they have a logic, and you get to eavesdrop on your interior. I mean, you're just sort of you're you're straightjacketed, <laughs> eavesdropping on a conversation of which you are the architect, and you know the protagonist. It's just a it's a wild thing, and I somehow think that when writing is going well, it can feel like that a little bit. That the undermined is activated in your writing, essentially. Yeah, that you're sort of word to word discovering something that there was no other um, medium to discover. I mean, you couldn't you could sit there and introspect until dusk, and you wouldn't get that story. It's something to do with the mechanical act of putting word words on paper. I've never had anything either. This makes it. This does make it sound kind of like gold star turban dumb. I've never had like automatic writing. I never really feel like I'm taking dictation from ghosts. I would love that. I think, you know, to feel like an antenna for a ghost. Also, that sounds much easier <laughs> than sort of weighing a scarlet. Ghost writer. Yeah, I would yeah. love to be a literal ghost writer. Yeah. I'd laugh all the way to the bank. <laughs> but um, but anyway, that, that's all to say that I do think as an avenue for discovering something inside yourself over which you are maybe helpless or that's beyond your conscious control Dreams and writing, similar, yeah. you know? And reading for me, it really has always felt sort of like lucid dreaming because you're assembling these worlds inside yourself and they're absolutely private. Well, I love that we don't know what dreams are for, that they sort of resist this reductive right. exploration of them. But even just backing up and looking at sleep itself, sleep itself seems mysterious. And the amount we actually know about sleep, independent of dreaming, it's kind, of, it's kind of remarkable how little we know. Right. Um, we know that we need it, and we're starting to learn what some of the things it does, but we don't really have any sort of comprehensive idea of what it's for. Right. Which, which is which I, I actually find – I'm buoyed by the, the fact that it, it remains interior and, and mysterious. Yeah, I think so too. And that – um. And sometimes I think the different theories that get positive, they almost read as much as a Rorschach of what what we wish to be the case. Mm -hmm. and I mean, there's tons of research now, and that was sort of fun to read about around sleep donation. But it's true. It might just be an evolutionary spandrel, which would certainly, you know, that's interesting, right? Because it's about a third of our lives. So what a bummer to sort of be out of the game for a third of our time on the planet. Right. Um, so how, speaking of research, how much research, how much... Did you feel compelled to do research versus just relying on imaginative faculties and your own experience with sleep and your family's experience with sleep? Oh, I think with this one, there was a way where I wanted just – I was imagining like a plague like this. There would be um, into the void all kinds of speculations and biological and more ridiculous crystals are my medicine mystic explanations would sort of rush to fill that void. Because um, I just think that's that's often what happens in a crisis. You know, yeah. it's a magnet for every kind of, you know, charlatan and neuroscience. Every, everybody kind of shows up to the party with an explanation. Well, um, but I, but I, so I, I did do some reading, but I, I wanted to preserve a space where I could also feel a little magical. Mm -hmm. You know, I, certainly I, I didn't want people distracted, wondering, well, how are these dreams being transferred between bodies? And I also, if I was extrapolating from anything, it was just the activity of writing and reading generally, right? That, to me, has always been how dreams are transferred between bodies. 
speaking of of the various theories around this epidemic that rush in to fill the void and none of them really seem like they're fully comprehensive yeah. one of them is this idea that we we sit too often in front of the uh bald eyeballs of our glowing screens <laughs> as you say yeah. and that's we'll talk about the perversity of the fact that this book only is available as as an e-novella and so we become complicit in in the epidemic itself because we're participating in one of the possible reasons why the epidemic is happening by reading it on a glowing screen but before we do that let's let's have you read from the glowing screen for our listeners so they oh, can hear hear some of the pros all right Let's see. You know what? Maybe I should find that section. Take your time. Thanks, David. We could take like a sleeping interlude and just dream on air. Should we? Put a little lullaby just on the air? Our- <laughs> I could put one on if you want. <laughs> That's, I mean, just uh, I was thinking a little bit about why the undermind is terrifying too, or yeah. exciting and terrifying. And that's part of it, you know. I had a surgery recently, and when I came out of sedation, was just like babbling God knows what. That's, you know, to me, really scary what the body, what the animal of your body articulates when you are not, when you are out of your own earshot, Mm. when you've just traveled out of your own earshot or or you've sunken out of sight. Um, And yet it's not like awareness is gone. Just your awareness of of awareness has sort of been turned off. And um, to go offline in that way, uh, I think it's terrifying for a lot of people. I do too. Even as it's, I mean, you see that, and it's scary to see my brother stumbling around with no, when his name has like kind of floated off. <laughs> it just sort yeah. of, he just shrugged off his name and his identity and history. He's just wandering around, um, you know, nameless and alive. That's really a scary thing. And uh, writing too, I think, can feel very scary and make you feel sort of vulnerable. And yet, that's part of what is so exciting about it. I'm sure to many is. To know that you are opening yourself up to our, to an articulation that will surprise you, hope you know that will su- hopefully surprise readers too, but but definitely that is an excess of your self knowledge, your mm-hmm. current self knowledge. It's a weird thing. Mm. Um, with this, with these folks in the book, I think the terror of going to have your sleep tested. I was thinking about people love to get anything tested, right? I mean, I think people are just so curious about what they are. Um, how they and how they measure up with others of the species with sleep and dreams. You know, I do think there's this real fear for Trish anyway that some kind of latent corruption is going to be exposed. Um, well, for I, I agree that tests having external measurements seems to give people. We seem to give naturally a lot of authority to it. Yeah. This external. Even if it's not true, just this idea of measurement seems to um, we seem to want to infuse that with a, a with a. Oh, that will truth. give me weight in space, right? And that yeah. will consolate me with others, and that mm-hmm. I, th- I, and you, I think that's it's interesting to see the way people commodify that now, right? So you can get all kinds of gadgets that will measure right. to the decimal how much you're sleeping, how many friends you have, how many likes you have, like all these all these different metrics. Just sort of like ground us in space and time. I mean, yeah. little little tiny stays. I was thinking, you know that uh, what's that Lilliputian picture of just a big sleeping giant? All the little guys have kind of like tied him down. That's right. In I Gulliver's saw, travel. Right, the Gulliver's travel sort of image of just this giant unconscious giant, just like these little men working to kind of fix him in space. Um, sorry, you asked me to read. Okay, here we go. So this is the section that sort of the original material. I was just cut from this innovations piece. Um, It was a B-side innovation. In high school, the Red Cross blood truck would pull up behind the trailers to collect donations from young Hale students who got to skip homeroom and eat a raisin cookie and relinquish pints of typo. My sister Dory gave, but I never did. I convinced myself that I was scared of needles. If I'd known then that I'd wind up here begging strangers for an hour of their sleep, I think I would have given blood at every opportunity. As a Corps volunteer, my duties are numerous and varied. Weekends, I mobilize the Sleep Van, a moonlit enterprise that dispatches a volunteer team to the homes of good sleepers who have signed up to donate their rest to insomniacs. A Sleep Van has a Spartan interior. The beds we call catch cots. If the van is equipped for infants and children, It features catch cribs and trundles. Nurses slip on the anesthetic mask, 
open the ivy of special chemicals, relieving a donor of consciousness. Next, they clamp on and adjust the silver helmet, which does chafe a bit. One to two minutes after the loss of consciousness, once the donor enters a state of artificially stimulated sleep, the draw commences. The air in the sleep van turns balmy as the tubing heats. A donor's dream-moist breath gets siphoned into nozzles that connect to our tanks. Healthy sleep is pumped out of the body in long, clear tubes. We set up for sleep drives in neighborhoods all across the country right at sundown. Nurses swab out helmets in multiple vans, preparing to take sleep donations for testing. Administrators sit inside lit tents on suburban lawns, holding clipboards, pre-screening donors with an eligibility questionnaire to filter out those whose sleep is prone to nightmares, disturbance. We babble the questions to volunteers under the midnight pines. When was your last full night of deep, unbroken sleep, ma'am? When did you last dream about barking dogs, outer space, red grass, and ex-wife? Now please be honest, sir. If your sleep was disturbed by her face, check the box. You've been listening to Karen Russell read from her newest novella, Sleep Donation. So in your conversation with Stephen King, he, he notices something that I also notice about sleep donation, and it, it feels like a distinct tonal shift for you from your previous work. And, and I know when you were last here and we were talking about Vampires in the Lemon Grove, we talked about a couple stories that I felt like I noticed an element of this shift, and, and namely uh, the Graveless Doll of Eric Mutis yeah. and Proving Up, which felt like they were distinctly more dark and moody. And um, and I feel like that element reappears in Sleep Donation, but is coupled with uh, what he what Stephen King identifies as a hard science fictional approach. And yeah. I would love to know whether this was something very consciously thought out in your mind as you approached this project, or whether it was just something that uh, felt right as you pushed yourself forward in creating the world and the characters as i remember um being so excited you know you you don't always have a sense of what you're up to i think so much of this novella is about that right that you really it's it's really difficult um there's just so much is happening that you're not aware of right i think we're always kind of writing in a blind spot so that was such a nice echolocation david last time i was here to hear that that might be one direction you know, you're, I just do think that you're just sort of flying in the night and you need the echolocation of readers because mm. how else would you even know? Um, but I was not. This was such a joyful project for me. I was, um, it was right after I had been on book tour for a while for vampires and I was sleep deprived and red eyed and insane. And this just really felt like a strange corner of the eye, like hothouse bloom of a thing. Um, I hadn't had that happen for a while that I felt so sort of whale swallowed by a, by a story. And it was exciting for me because I didn't know what it was. And it did feel totally sort of different. And uh, I felt kind of giddy thinking, oh, yeah, you can flat words on paper, but you can just do this. You can say there's a technology that transfers dreams between bodies. Right. Um, and then kind of ride in that vehicle to sort of some of these huge questions that also surprised me. I think if I had sat down and really consciously thought, oh, I'm, I'm curious to explore you know, what's the true nature of a gift? What do we all want to know? Like, the, it would just would have felt terrible, terribly pretentious and impossible. Um, so it was only sort of like zipping into Trish and then walking the night. Uh, I, th I, but I, but it's funny. I just it's sort of now in retrospect, right? You want to, if you want to do the piece out some of the influences, I'm sure Dune is in there. The Wizard of Oz is in there. There are all kinds of funny sc scramblings. Um, but I don't know that I was so aware of them kind of I also wonder, going in. and this is just a pure speculation on my part, but I also wonder if you moving more frequently into stories with adult protagonists that aren't in, in Florida, the place of your childhood, is 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 somehow coupled with this this shift in tone or, or mood also. That, that's true. And I think we talked about this last time, right? Nothing feels riskier and more frightening to me than trying to write a adult protagonist <laughs> and leaving the state of Florida. <laughs> like I really feel on shaky Bambi legs. Anytime I take on anybody who's not like just like an effeminate 13 year old boy in Florida, forget it. Things start to feel a little, little loose. But I, I, you know, I also think I felt um, a freedom now that I might not have felt a little bit earlier. Who knows why? But it, but it did feel like 
I might have been a little more self-conscious about doing something this whacked out um, and sort of like unapologetically and gleefully sci-fi. Yeah. Earlier. I mean, the place, the place where the horror element and the sci-fi element in Sleep Donation find their sort of nexus or vortex is with baby A. And we, we learn in, the, in Sleep Donation that babies have a pure form of sleep, yeah. a better form of sleep to be donated but baby a also we we find out as a universal donor and even though one of her her parents is reluctant one is very gung-ho and so slumber core goes back over and over and over again to cajole more donations out of baby a which feels like the real uh heart of the dilemma of the story and also feels very vampiric yeah, absolutely right. This was a tough one to pull off because I was thinking, you can imagine, right, like all the dreadful alternatives where let's say you're going to write about um, or get, there there are other writers that could take on some of these questions in a realist context and say I'm going to write about organ donation. Or I mean, I think Ishiguro in, in sort of sci-fi fantasy mode does such a beautiful job of considering – a dystopian nightmare future where we're, you know, we're raising these clones um, for nefarious purposes. I, I think for me somehow I was hoping to kind of gong some note that was both darkly funny and then also sort of earnest in its horror um, and our unregulated appetites. And what would really, if we like, I think that if you do sort of just do a set up a what would happen if where everybody is sleep deprived and there are children. This is close to Ben Marcus, too, in a funny way, right? I'm sure I was sort of unconsciously influenced by the flame alphabet where children, they are a resource, you know? Yeah. Um, I also thought of the Ursula Le Guin story uh, about the child that has to be oh, that mi- fable, held yeah. miserable so the rest of the community that's funny. can be I just funny. I just saw Snowpiercer, which I, if that's not an explicit reference to Ursula, I, I don't know how that happened. You know, I don't know if you've seen that movie. I have. Right? I'd love to know if, if that's a shout out to Ursula, that scene with the little boy. Yeah. Uh, spoilers. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but um, But what's interesting, if you think about sleep is in order to be healthy, we have to stop. We right. have to pause, and even though we don't want to. And it's, it's an interesting thing, juxtaposition you've made where we have this epidemic of people who don't sleep and, uh, and are suffering this, the consequences of not stopping, essentially. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about relentless appetite, how strange that, but also how perfect for the narrative that we would want to just keep going back and tapping this resource of course, right? in order to solve an insomnia epidemic, which was probably caused from that same impulse of wanting right. to go back and and drawing from our resources without replenishing them. Right. I mean, I think so many of the stories in vampires, that would that would be the font of horror for them too, right? You're vampiric. So the, the title story, that is the horror, the horror story for me. Is sort of, so you have a bottomless appetite. How do you regulate it? You know how, and and we've done just like our track record on this planet, not excellent, right? <laughs> In terms right. of, um, yeah, finding ways to regulate a, a thirst that we can assume, you know, and that's that's endless. So uh, that to me too, you know, I I think the term that I use in the novella is hydrology of human generosity. I just have been fascinated recently with sort of where and how and why we give to each other what we what we can give and um you know what what the membranes are and what the the physics of that transfer are where it's conscious and where it's unconscious and where we sort of like tighten our fists and resist and where it's easy to have kind of an open palm transfer i think so much fiction is is driven by that also mm. um and i you know mrs harkonnen the mother in the in this book, she in some ways is also a horrifying character to me. She's someone who lets the, the slumber court come and basically drain her daughter and does seem to feel a, a total commitment, you know, to the project of, of giving sleep. F- feels, you know, a matter-of-fact generosity that I've just, as a, you know, f- from out here, you know, as her creator or whatever, but I... But, 
find really scary, really scary and provocative, you know, the idea of like where would you, how those lines get drawn. Mm. Um, and and if you really are focusing on treating the symptom rather than going for the cause, unforeseen consequences are inevitable, it would seem to me. And, and, and in this case, people receive sleep donations that are blends from many donors. It reminded me of the way if you eat industrial hamburger, you're getting, you know, a hamburger right. that's coming from like many cows and from all different states, which makes it inevitable that if there's a contamination, it's going to spread really quickly. And and we have to confront that in the world of sleep donation as well. A, a right. nightmare that runs loose and is hard to track down. Oh, yeah. I, this is this is going to sound like a weird tangent, but, you know, I'm new to Portland. There's so many sort of like food accommodations made here and you sort of like, you know, all kinds of um, corruption fears, I think, around food, yeah. like food taboos. That feels sort of new. And I was thinking about what we're exposed to on a daily basis now that has to just the, the complete volitionless immersion in like other minds, you know, or just the noise. You know, I think Saunders is another George Saunders, who I know we're both huge fans of the horror stories he writes. They're often about what it is to be hostage to such advertising noise. And so many, you know, that that sort of constant drone of solicitation and like whatever the the deforming, you know, waves of that, that kind of um, forcible capitalist dream, tra- you know, where you're just sort of you're an eyeball that people are trying to shove advertisements into and and program desires into all the time around the clock, you know. And I think he in that sense, that's that's. Some of that horror, I think, is inside of this novella for me, too, just what it is to sort of be um, – have all of these, like, lame wizards trying to put a spell on you all the time <laughs> from different media outlets. I'm mostly a Luddite in the sense that I love reading books, physical objects. But I really – I found a perverse pleasure that I was forced to read this on a screen and was implicated in the narrative essentially by watching it on a screen. Oh, and I, wonder, I wondered if that was – an intentional part of choosing to to go with atavist books and to have a, a digital only version of sleep donation is it was that intentional that you you wove the narrative in with the the yeah. format of the delivery of the story yeah so that i mean like everything else i guess in the the gestation of this one sort of both serendipitous and accidental and also then intentional where early on, you know, we sh- I was working on this draft and it had gotten so long and I just didn't see where we would ever publish something that was this hybrid piece and felt really kind of like a risk and weird for me and um, wasn't a short story. And also I didn't, you know, wasn't going to be a novel. You know, it just felt like this this hybrid creation. And Atavis Books um, was sort of just l- looking for manuscripts and at first I was a little suspicious because I'm a Luddite too and I love books and I love print. Um, and then I met with Francis Cody at Out of His Books, who's fantastic. And we talked a little bit about sort of what their project is and these as a as a forum for really kind of sui generis, weird, mutant digital books. And they do print too, some digital only, some print. And this, the more we talked about it, the more I started to think in a perverse way Digital only would be perfectly correct for a story about an insomnia epidemic that's in sort of like the neon campfire, you know, of the witching hour, the new witching hour. Um, and I'm glad, I'm so glad that that you feel implicated a little bit in a different way, uh, especially with the ending. I think I was hoping that there might be some third term complicity or something if you're receiving Dory's story through this glowing device. Um, and it is sort of foregrounding meditations on what does it mean to be awake, half awake? What does it mean to be connected to so many other minds in this anonymous way? Um, I, I what, also, what is what's happening to like the day night binary, right? In this sort of new new era. Um, I loved I loved the way they did the website with. Uh, you, how you can find out how pure your sleep is, or then, or I the thought nightmare. That was index. so fun. Was... I just thought that was fun. Um, I also think because like writing is sort of a lonely enterprise, so it was so cool <laughs> to have Chip Kid, um, Kevin Chong, and and Derek Schultz just des- design this website. 
And I'm, you know, I can draw a picture of a dog. I'm a terrible artist. I don't, that's not any skill that I've ever possessed. So to sort of um, get to play with them and, and maybe design. Here's a gross analogy for that. I was thinking of it as like a placenta. <laughs> that, like, or just some sort of like cyber support for yeah. the book. It's not, you know, it's not necessary to go there, I guess, to read the novella. But it was just fun to imagine what that might look like, right? And scary, too, I guess, to think about how closely it resembles things that already exist. How the line between, if if we're talking about here's a request and here's co- coercion, I just think that, and Saunders gets at this, too, in a way that terrifies me, the insidious and pervasive reach of advertisers, you know, where kind of the not-for-profit, for-profit line gets mm-hmm. really blurry, and just the encroachments on privacy in general now. Absolutely. Absolutely right. I, yeah, I guess that's exactly it. Just the, the ubiquity of these devices. Um, I, I feel that, I guess, because I'm a Luddite a little bit myself, that I'm just, there's some jet lag for me now or something mm. where I haven't quite mastered the art of, of like living at a time where we're, we're all... Um, downloading images, shedding images of ourselves into this, like, great brain. <laughs> well, the the whole metaphor of, of donation and infusions, and, and you've, in, in a bad way and a good way, I mean, you've talked about stories. In a way, stories are a technology of infusing yeah. somebody's consciousness or dreams or stories into another mind or into the great mind also. And uh, I know in your new story in The New Yorker, Bad graft is also continuing along this idea of infusion. Yeah. But it sort of flips the narrative. I wondered if you'd talk about it a little bit. The horror in bad graft is essentially <laughs> the horror of a non human trapped in a human. Mm-hmm. Which I, I love. I mean, the <laughs> idea of imagining, even though it's not told from the perspective of the tree. Right. It's the infusion of the tree and then the experience of the tree not being able to break out of the human. That is the horror of the story. It's just a bad graph. Yeah, it's so funny. That's interesting. I haven't really talked about about that newborn thing too much, but I do think that it's connected in a a really funny way to some of the fears inside of sleep donation, right? Um, Or uh, with sleep donation, not the same, but I think this woman is incubating her dead sister, really, uh, and not in her fullness, but just this one memory that sort of has this, that, and I think that's the way we talked about this last time, I remember with the new veterans, that trauma can have a life in the body where it's just ceaselessly looping, like a bad dream, just the recurring nightmare of one day eclipsing all of your own life, and it's not sort of like an egg you can hatch out, right? So what, what are you supposed to do with that at the same time? amnesia forgetting as a constellation feels terrifying because maybe that that entity doesn't exist anywhere else except in your consciousness where you're where you're uh gestating it indefinitely so like like a dream or a nightmare i mean i think that this story the bad graft is about this couple that goes to joshua tree national park they happen to go during a pulse event when the joshua tree this unbelievably weird amazing species is um it's 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 pollination time. These moths are flying in, and it, there's this pulse event where they're. It, this really happened uh, in 2013, all across the Southwest. The Joshuas are in bloom, and it, it, this is like an unpredictable thing. And some people speculate it's because uh, sort of like a hail mary pass that extinction is threatening them. They've had these drought seasons. This is sort of their species' real push to continue. They're this ancient weird tree that looks just like Dr. Seuss or Timothy Leary or something. And I used to love the metamorphosis stories where, you know, ladies are having a bad date with Zeus, so they have to jump into a tree or a rock um, and ossify to survive. Just I think that's one version of the horror story, right, where your consciousness is trapped in something stony or static. In this version, you know, I, it's so funny to talk about. It. I was just reading about how plants don't have a nervous system because they don't move. <laughs> mm. So um, that's just I'm not a sophisticated thinker, I guess. So I wanted to think about rootedness and freedom. And I just have this plant jump into a human woman. And it's not a good marriage at all. That plant 
absolutely doesn't belong. The spirit of the tree, right, is what I'm saying. So in the same way that, you know, you might have a Daphne, right? Here's a woman's spirit inside a, a tree. Here's a laurel tree that actually contains, uh, you know, a female soul. Just well, the spirit of the Joshua is inside this lady. Well, I'm I'm really an, an advocate that Sorry. people should read Sleep Donation and Bad Graft together. Like, I, I, I know you didn't mean it that way, but it feels like in Sleep Donation, you, 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 this unrelentless appetite of the, of the human species yeah. and this exploration of, of what effect that has on us ourselves, but also even though it doesn't explicitly say that, it implies like what is it doing to the non-human. Right. And Bad Graft really gives us a sense of how narrow – it would feel to be stuck in a human consciousness if you if you were one of these non-humans. The sense of other the otherness that we're, we seem intolerant of allowing to coexist with us. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm so glad I read that way, David. I do think it's a kind of a funny, imaginative challenge to even even you know playfully try to apprehend what it would be like to have some kind of non-human sentience or experience or whatever. But I like the bad graph because it just seems sort of like, well, what if you had some hybrid entity where here's the plant on the mic, here's sort of the plant taking advantage of your human nervous system and consciousness and acoustics to articulate some of its own programmed impulses? What would it feel like also just if we're talking about queasy making velocity, you just that just seems like a mismatch, right? The velocity of a human life, um, you know, our, our lurching motions our really brief tenure on this planet, sort of where the, the blown spore quality of like a drifter's existence. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think I think it was like a fun way to, to meditate on all of that. You know, sometimes I think we can be inured to our own speeds and desires. And so fiction for me has always been that place where you're like, well, let's wake up a little bit. If we come at it from this vantage, what does the thing look like? <laughs> well, you know, what does it really feel like to be alive, you know, in these body rockets? <laughs> It was great having you on Between the Covers again, Karen. All right, David. Thank so, you. I want to try for guest three. I'm going to keep writing so you have me back. Well, I, speaking of guests. I want to set the record. Can you, <laughs> can you tip your hand at all about what people can look forward to in the future? Oh, man. I'm working on a long-form nonfiction piece now. Everybody pray for me. It's a real stretch. And um, I've been slyly, slowly getting back into this Dust Bowl project that we talked about last time. Right. That, that's my long marriage. Well, so I look forward to both of those. Thanks, David. You've been listening to Between the Covers, and we've been talking today to Karen Russell about her latest e-novella, Sleep Donation. I'm David Naiman, your host. 